0: Ni hao. Well, good morning. And uh, on behalf of uh, First Open Church of Marlborough, we give you our greetings from 7,000 miles away. It is a privilege to be here with you this morning and to bring God's word to you this morning. As Danny said, uh, my name is Zach Schluggle. I serve as the, one of the pastors at our church, and with me is Tyrone, who's also another pastor at our church. And its it's been a joy to be here with you. And I think one of the things that just has struck me, even even being with you this morning, singing the songs that we cherish and and talking about the gospel that we cherish, and, and hearing God's word that we cherish—it's—it's—it's it's, it's sweet to me that truth is truth everywhere, and the gospel is it, that you cherish, we cherish the Jesus you love, we love, and it is a—it's a sweet thing to see that, and to be here with you this morning. Chan Gailey uh, was a successful American football coach. Uh, he led his college team to the national championship, and it was a big deal for him to do that. He was the coach at Troy State, one of the colleges in in America. But the week before they played the championship game, he was headed out to practice to, to get his team ready for the big game uh, when his secretary uh, called him back to the office to take a phone call. And he was a little irritated, and he told her, just take a message. I, we have a big game to prepare for. We're we're on this national championship stage. Um, but she said, well, listen, coach, it's it's Sports Illustrated. Sports? Sports Illustrated. Well, I'll be right there. So he told the team to wait. He ran back into the office. And as he was making his way back to the building, he began to think about the upcoming article about him and about how this underdog team was making it to the national championship. And he thought, oh, this would be great publicity for, for Troy State and their, their college football program. And the closer he got to the office, he, he, he began to realize, you know, maybe a three-page article would not be enough to tell the story of this amazing turnaround of the program that he had achieved. And he got closer to the office and he realized, well, he, you know, he might be on the front cover of Sports Illustrated, a major sports magazine in America. And he thought, well, should I take a, you know, should I go with an action shot? Should I do a head shot? What, what will this cover of the magazine look like when he's on the cover of Sports Illustrated and by the time he got to the office his, his head was spinning with all the possibilities. He picks up the phone, says hello, and the person asks, Is this is this Chan Gailey? Yes, this is this is Chan, this is Coach. Well this is Sports Illustrated. Yes I know. Well we're calling to let you know that your subscription is running out. Are you interested in renewing wasn't quite the phone call that he had thought. So, as Coach Gilly told the story, he concluded by saying, you're either humble or you will be humbled. We are either humble or we will be humbled. It's very true. Which destination we end up at, whether we are humble or humbled, depends on how we pursue greatness, how we think about what greatness is and how we achieve greatness in our life. Proverbs 18.12 says that before his downfall, a man's heart is proud. But humility comes before honor. So when we think about uh, pride and we think about humility, God's path for greatness is humility first, then honor. It's always been that way. And when we come to the New Testament, we look at the Gospel of Mark, uh, a book about Jesus, his his teachings, his life, and his death and his resurrection. In in the middle of Mark's Gospel, chapters 8 through 10, Jesus has made it very clear to his disciples. He said over and over in many different ways, he's trying to help his disciples understand, first the cross, then the crown. That was his way of, of teaching then that before honor comes humility. First the cross, then the crown. But like Coach Gailey's vision of greatness, the disciples uh, were struggling to understand what Jesus was teaching. The disciples dreamed about being on the front page of Disciples Weekly magazine. They dreamed of the red carpet being thrown out before them because they were in the in the inner circle of Jesus, and they imagine people coming up to them as the twelve disciples and them signing autographs for their new book. They were so caught up with this vision of glory, this vision of greatness as the world thinks about greatness, that they stopped caring about the glory that comes from God. And they became obsessed and blinded by their pursuit of seeking the glory that comes from man. But God loves his people jesus loved his disciples and he is patient with them and he continued to teach them with great patience and love and he clarifies to his disciples what it means to follow him he he clarifies in other words what it means to be a christian And and what's helpful is, not only is Jesus clarifying what it means to be a follower of, of Jesus for his disciples, but as we read the pages of the Gospel of Mark, he speaks to us today as well, teaching us and clarifying for us, this is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it means, in other words, to be a Christian. And he leads us down a path, as we look at Mark 10 this morning, he leads us down a path to true greatness, a path to eternal life. So. If you will, turn with me to Mark 10, either on your phone, if you have your Bible with you. If you're looking at the program in front of you, the text uh, of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, is found on page 12. So either in the program, in your Bible, on your phone, you can turn and follow along with us. And encourage you to keep your Bible open, follow along um, if you're new here. I'm just going to read through the text. We're going to be explaining what it means and how it applies to our lives. And as we've sung and prayed about either already before, we're asking God to reveal himself to us in the pages of Scripture. Now, Mark 10, just a kind of a quick preview, because we're kind of jumping in the middle of the book. Mark 10 is really the climax of chapters 8, 9, and 10. Those three chapters kind of belong together in Mark's Gospel. At the end of chapter 10, we're going to find three lessons as Jesus teaches us about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We're going to see three lessons about following Christ. Let me give you those three lessons ahead of time if you're taking notes, that way you can kind of follow along. And these will be the three points of my sermon this morning. First, the first lesson is following Jesus starts with trusting Jesus. Following Jesus begins with trusting Jesus. We're going to see that in verses 32 through 34. Second lesson. Following Jesus means rejecting the world's approach to greatness. Following Jesus means rejecting the world's approach to greatness. We're going to see that unfold in verses 35 through 45 of chapter 10. And third, third lesson, following Jesus means crying out for mercy. We're going to see that in verses 46 through 52. Following Jesus means crying out for mercy. So let's let's look together at the beginning of Mark 10, verse 32, And we will consider that first lesson, the lesson that following Jesus begins with trusting Jesus. So let me begin by reading verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So this... These these beginning verses, verses 32 to 34, are a a really dramatic scene in the text. Jesus Jesus knows uh, in his ministry exactly where he's going as the Father reveals to him. He knows that the suffering he's about to face is just around the corner as he and his disciples head up to Jerusalem. So, you know, we might expect Jesus to kind of be lagging behind, but when we look at verse 32, the text shows Jesus leading the way. It's the disciples who are lagging behind. He was walking ahead of them. Again, most of us, if we knew that we were walking up to our own crucifixion, that we were going to be spat upon, mocked, beaten, I would be dragging my feet. I assume you would be dragging your feet too, but that's not Jesus. Jesus is leading the way. He is fully prepared to obey the Father. No matter the cost, to the very end. Because in love, he willingly sets out on his path, and he is unwavering in his commitment, both to the Father and in love for us. So Jesus, we see in the very beginning, is out front. He's leading the procession. But in verse 32, we see those who are following him are afraid. They, they, they have a sense of something you know, kind of precarious, something that is, is looming in the, in the, in the back that's, that's dangerous, that's on their way as they get closer to Jerusalem. The expectation and suspense in verses 32 through 4 are high. Something's about to happen. Well, what did they expect? What did the disciples think was going to happen when they marched into Jerusalem? What did they think Jesus was about to do? Did they understand his mission? Did they understand how he would bring salvation? Well, the expectation of the Messiah is a long expectation. It's a long-standing expectation in the Old Testament. The Jews would long for and expect this Messiah, this Savior, who would come to rescue them as God's people. And as the Messiah, the disciples still think that Jesus is going to march into Jerusalem. They expect Jesus to come into Jerusalem as a warrior, as a military general who will wipe out Rome. Because at this point in history, Rome was was, was the authority. And the Jews living in Jerusalem were under the state of Rome. They were oppressed by Rome. And so they thought, this is the Messiah who's going to come with military might and wipe out these Romans who have been oppressing us for so many years. That's what their expectation seems to be throughout Mark's gospel. But Jesus is again clarifying to these disciples that's not how it's going to go down. They don't seem to get it, but he repeatedly teaches them in the gospel how this is going to happen. Jesus has announced several times in Mark's gospel, three times in Mark's gospel already, that his future involves suffering and death. Again, this is, this is his reminder, his teaching to the disciples that first comes suffering. First comes the cross, then comes the crown. He's trying to help them to understand this. So he would bring salvation for his people, not by making other people suffer, but he would bring salvation by suffering himself on their behalf. But the disciples, again, they don't get it. So after announcing in Mark 8, verse 31, that he must suffer, he must be rejected, he must be killed, Peter takes him aside and he rebukes Jesus in Mark 8 for talking this way. Peter again seems to think that Jesus is this military Messiah, this military general. Don't say that's going to happen. It's not going to go down that way, Jesus. You're wrong. You're mistaken. When Jesus announces for a second time in Mark 9, verse 31, Jesus says ahead of time, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men to be killed. Again, the disciples bicker about who among them is the greatest. Because they think this is a military campaign coming in with guns blazing on the red carpet of victory. And now, for a third time, Jesus announces his coming death. Look once more at verse 33 with me. Jesus says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. You see the hint, the echo of first the cross, That's the spitting, that's the mocking, that's the flogging, that's the death. Then the crown. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus is making this clear. Now, pause and think about what Jesus is saying. Because what he's talking about is a future event. He's saying, this has not happened yet. This is about to happen. We're we're walking into Jerusalem. This is just around the corner. This is the future. Now, when we talk about the future, we might we might have predictions about the future. So, we when we when we predict, make predictions we we about the future. We usually speak in general terms. So, you know, if it's NBA season, we might be a, if you're a Cleveland Cavalier fan, we might say, well, listen, you know, the the Cleveland Cavaliers have a game this afternoon, and my guess is they're going to win. They're going to they're going to have a victory that day. So, we might speak of the future in general terms and hopes and expectations like that, but we don't really speak in specifics because we don't know the future with specifics like that. We don't say, we don't speak of the future like this. We don't say, well, listen, the Cleveland Cavaliers have a game today, and they will win. They will win 94 to 93, because in the, in the, in the final seconds of the game, LeBron James is going to steal the ball and he's going to shoot from a half-court line, and he's going to make it, and he's going to win the game with one second left left ticking off the clock. If you said that, we're, we're thinking, okay, how do you know that? There's no way for you to know the details of the game that way. We don't speak about the future like that, because we don't know the specifics of the future like that. But Jesus, when he speaks about the future like he is in these verses, he is using that level of detail. Do you notice that? He speaks of who will be involved. The chief priests, the scribes, the Gentiles. Those are the characters involved that's going to happen. He provides the details of how this is going to go down. They will mock him. They will spit on him. They will flog him. They will kill him. And he also gives a timeline. After three days, he will rise. He speaks with great specificity, great detail about how the future will go down. And what's helpful is that if if we skip ahead to the end of Mark's gospel, we find that what Jesus said happens exactly as he said in time and human history. And we can even go outside of the gospel account in in, in our scriptures. We can go outside and look look to other historical accounts and find that that's, that's how it happened. Just as Jesus said it happened.
1: As one writer puts it,
0: this pattern of testable details followed by specific fulfillment is one more reason we have to trust the Bible is true. Friends, you may be here this morning as a skeptic. You're you're, you're, you're here kind of trying to figure out whether or not you believe Christianity to be true. You're not sure if you believe it to be true or not. You may be skeptical about the, the Bible and what you hear us as Christians saying about the Bible being God's word, being absolutely true, without error. You might not be sure that you believe that yet. And if that's you this morning, we are so glad that you came to church this morning.
1: One thing we'd love for you to know is
0: about the Bible is that the Bible actually invites your questions. The Bible invites your difficult questions. Because if the Bible is true, it will stand up to the toughest of questions that we have. We don't need to be afraid of asking a question and having truth unravel. If it's true, it will stand up to those questions. Now, if if you come to the Bible with your mind made up, if you read the Bible yourself or with somebody in the church, and you come to the Bible with your mind made up like, "Ah, I don't really believe this, and I'm not going to believe this. If you refuse to give the Bible an honest reading, well, that might actually say more about your closed-mindedness than about the Bible's truthfulness. But, if you are willing to read the Bible with an open mind, to give it a fair shake, and a- then you should, you should ask whatever questions you have about the Bible, about Jesus, about God. We as Christians don't gloss over the Bible. We don't skip the hard questions. Far from it. When we read the Bible as Christians, we look closely at the details we try to question ourselves. We try to question, what is the Bible saying here? We turn the Bible over and over carefully in our minds. And we invite you, as a non-Christian, as a skeptic, to do the same thing. Read the Bible. Ask the questions that you have. Because the Bible is true. But as you read the scriptures, as you read the Bible, if you find the Bible to be reliable, reliable, and it seems trustworthy to you as you read it. My challenge to you is that you do what any honest person would do with that conclusion. And that is that you trust the God who speaks in the pages of Scripture. And so, if you're here as a skeptic, as a non-Christian, my encouragement to you is to read the Bible for, on your own. Maybe maybe find somebody else in this church to read the Bible with. And, 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 and read with an open mind and ask all the questions that you have. Because the Bible itself is one of the best arguments about the truthfulness of it. it, it, it as you read it, it has a way of affirming in your own heart and your mind that this, this does not sound like just the words of men. This is the word of God. So, give it a shot. Read it. Ask your questions. It's true. Following Jesus begins with trusting Jesus. Being a Christian begins with trusting Jesus. Now, Every other world religion teaches that, in some way, morality, it, it teaches a certain morality in the hopes that if you do enough good in your life, if your good outweighs the bad in the end of your life, in the scales of God's justice, that's how you get into heaven. Then God, you know, If your good outweighs your bad, then God will let you into heaven. Our problem, however, requires more than a moral tune-up, just a, a little tweaking The Bible is very clear that that you and I, we have all sinned against God and left to ourselves. We are trapped by the demands of God's justice. God is a good God. And because God is good, he will punish all sin. If God sweeps our sin and our wickedness and our evil under the carpet, winks an eye, then he becomes corrupt himself. He cannot do that. God will punish all sin. And the punishment for our sin is not only a separation from a holy God who is perfectly good, but it is the punishment of hell itself. Hell becomes the expression of His wrath, His righteous wrath, towards evil and sin. So we're trapped by the demands of justice, well then what do we do? Let's skip down to verse 45. Look again at your text, verse 45. For the first time in Mark's Gospel, Jesus explains explicitly why he came to die. Verse 45, For even the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Bible is very clear, the wages of our sin is death. That means no amount of good works can make up for our bad because the cost of our sin, the demands of God's justice is our very life. If we get what we deserve, then we deserve death. And friends, that is why Jesus came. That's why Jesus explains he came. He came to give his life as a ransom, as a payment for many. The word for, in verse 45, when he says, He came not to serve, not to be served, but to to give his life as a ransom for many. The word for there means in the place of, as a substitute. So unlike every other world religion, the savior of Christianity, the savior in Christianity is Jesus. And Jesus says he's the savior because he came to die for us in our place as our substitute for anyone who would turn from their sin and trust in him. He, in his death, purchases the redemption of our our souls, if we are willing to turn from our sin and trust in him. To those who trust in Jesus, he offers eternal life. He offers joyful fellowship with a God that we are created to know and love and follow. And he offers the forgiveness of sins, a clean conscience.
1: We know that this is
0: true, that his offer of forgiveness, the offer of fellowship, the offer of being in a right relationship with our God, we know it's true because not only did Jesus die for our sins, but just as he promised three days later, he rose from the dead, verifying that his sacrifice for our sin was sufficient and that he can declare us righteous because he rose from the dead if we're willing to trust in him. So friends, if you're here and you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus, then that is the good news of Christianity. And what remains for you is not just to know this truth, but to know that you must respond to it. We all must respond to that truth of the good news. And and, and the question that we're faced with is, will we trust in Jesus? Because that's the very beginning of the Christian life. Will we turn from our sin? Will we turn from our self-reliance? And will we trust in Jesus for our salvation? It's not enough just to know that Jesus came and did this. It's not even enough to agree with the fact that he came to do this. It's not enough to just see Jesus as a good moral teacher, because Jesus claims about himself will not allow us to. Jesus claims not just to be a good moral teacher, he claims to be God himself, the second, the the, the son of God. So anything short of trusting Jesus with all of our life, trusting Jesus as our God, then puts us in the group of those in this story who mock him, and spit on Him. If we do not affirm who He says He is as God, then we are mocking Him, and we are spitting on Him. And friends, the end of those who do that and refuse to acknowledge who Jesus is, is, the end of that is judgment. If we refuse to trust in Jesus, we're left to stand before this Holy God on our own two feet, our own merit, and we deserve hell. Friends, Jesus came to give His life that we might have life. So my plea to you this morning is that you would not ignore what Jesus is saying to us, but that you would turn from your sin and trust in Christ. Because he promises you forgiveness if you'll do that this morning. If you have questions about that, I'm sure there are folks afterwards that would be more than glad to talk to you about how you can be right with God. And so don't leave here this morning without, if you have those questions, don't leave here this morning without asking and, 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 and learning what the Bible says about how you can be right with God. Three times... Three times Jesus taught his disciples about his coming suffering, his coming death, his future resurrection, and and even after three times, they still don't understand the way of the cross. First the cross, then the crown. They don't yet understand that following Jesus means rejecting the world's approach to greatness. And friends, that's our second point we see in this text here that following Jesus, the second lesson is, following Jesus means rejecting the world's approach to greatness. And we'll see that beginning in verse 35. So let's return our attention to God's word here in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I was baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is For those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Notice James and John's approach to Jesus in verse 35. In verse 35 they say to Jesus, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. So let me, let me just give you a free parenting tip, okay? If your kids come up to you and say, hey dad, hey mom, we want you to do whatever it is we ask for you before telling you what they are going to ask of you, parents don't say yes. And you probably know that already, right? Because if they need to preface their question, their request with you agreeing to say yes before they ask you the question, that should make their question highly suspect, Right, which proves true in James and John's request. In verse 37, we see the request. And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. So to, to James and John, in your glory is a phrase that means when Jesus is sitting on his throne. To sit at the right and to the left is essentially to ask for the highest positions of power and authority and status. They're essentially asking Jesus, make us, James and John, your chief of staff and your prime minister. They still think this is the military Messiah. He's going to come into Rome and wipe out Rome, and then he's going to sit on his throne, and once we get there, we want to sit at your right and left. But the request is really a continuation of the disciples' previous argument that we saw in chapter 9 about who among them is the greatest. They're always bickering as the disciples. Who who is the greatest? I'm I'm better than you. I'm the greatest. I, I get to sit at the right hand of Jesus. You can sit at his left. Jesus has talked to them about the sacrifice that he is about to make on their behalf. And yet it goes in one ear and out the other ear. For James and John. Yeah, 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 Jesus, we get that. We know you're going to make a sacrifice. Okay, okay, we got that. But we need to talk to you about something really important. We want to be your number one and your number two. So the contrast of what Jesus is saying he's about to do and what the disciples are asking of Jesus is a shocking, stark contrast. Here's Jesus, a week from being betrayed by a close friend, falsely accused, mocked, spat upon, beaten and killed in order to rescue sinners as a ransom for many the burden of that and knowing that would be an incredible burden and now is the moment when he needs his friends the most but all they can think about is themselves jesus needs their support and they're arguing who among them is the greatest who gets to sit on the right and who gets to sit on the left So as the reader, I I think oftentimes when we as a reader read this, we often get frustrated with the disciples. I mean, come on, guys. Don't you see what's going on? Why don't they get it? And as the reader, it's easy for us to be critical of the disciples. It's easy for us to assume, if I was there, if I was one of the twelve, I wouldn't be acting like this. I would get it. But would we? Would you? In Mark chapter 8, Jesus makes it clear. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Friends, if you're a Christian, how has that gone for you this past month? You have been doing that? Later on in chapter 9, Jesus a second time announces his suffering and coming death, and then the disciples interrupt him by who's the greatest. And Jesus responds to them saying, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Be servant of all. How, how's that going for you, Christians? This past month, have you done that well? Have you embraced the identity of a servant the identity of a table waiter. Because that's what he calls us to be, towards one another. Or, or like these disciples, have you worried about what others think about you? Like these disciples, have you have you noticed a concern in your heart that when you walk in a room, you want to make sure that people notice that you're important? I'm guilty of that. Have you found yourself defensive? or insulted by a request for something that you feel is beneath you this week. Why would they ask me to do that? I, I'm, I'm, that's beneath me. I think when we do a little bit of self-reflection, we realize we're more like the disciples than we realize. It's easy to be critical of them as the reader, but we are more like the disciples than we realize. So Jesus, in his love, in his patience, repeats the same message three times. Because the disciples need the reminder again and again and again. And you know what? So do we. Heart change, being a servant, takes time. It takes time to learn that. We forget what we've learned and we struggle to embrace with our hearts the truth we know in our heads. But once again we see Jesus merciful, painstaking patience with the disciples who don't yet get it verse 38 in verse 38 jesus said to them you do not know what you're asking are you able to drink the cup that i drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which i am baptized so that might be a little confusing to us let's make sure we understand what that is the cup and the baptism are actually symbols in scripture of suffering and god's wrath that's why later on in in mark 14 verse 36 jesus prays in great agony Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but you will. And he prays that in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he goes up to his crucifixion. The cup is a symbol of God's wrath. That he would drink for us. He would drink the cup of God's righteous wrath toward our sin, so that you, if you're trusting in him, would not have to drink that. The baptism then symbolizes the flood of suffering that he was about to be be immersed by, similar to the flood in Genesis 6, as an instrument of God's wrath. So when Jesus asks, are you able to drink the cup, or are you able to be baptized, do you know what you're asking? It's a rhetorical question. Jesus knows that in the ultimate sense, they can't. Yes, they will suffer for following Jesus, but not in the way that Jesus' death is a unique ransom to redeem sinners. They will taste suffering, but they will not be a ransom like he is in their death. Jesus' death is unique. So for us to drink that cup would mean to suffer in hell. Jesus alone drinks that cup, so the child of God does not have to. And yet, even when Jesus asked them this, James and John seem unfazed because of their prideful ignorance, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Yeah, we're able to. We can do this. But look again at verse 38. Jesus says, "You do not know what you're asking." <laughs> do you know the next time we see someone, at, at, the next time we see someone at Jesus' right and his left in Scripture, the next time we see somebody at Jesus' right and his left is in Mark 15, verse 25. The next time scripture talks about somebody being on his right and his left, Mark 15, 25 says this. It was the third hour when they crucified Jesus. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. James and John, in asking to be on his right and his left, had no idea what they were asking for. They thought it meant military glory and the red carpet and ticker tape parade. And what Jesus understands is, no, to be my right, my left, is like the thieves being crucified on his right and his left, to taste the cup, to be baptized without suffering. Friends, I think when Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for, it's good for us to remember that too. Because sometimes we come to God and we're asking for something that we think is right and good. And when God says no, we get frustrated. We don't understand why God says no. We don't understand why God says not yet sometimes. And that leaves us in despair. But if God says no to you, if he says not yet to you, as he says to James and John, I think it's a good reminder that he says no or not yet because he loves you. We don't have the ability to see everything perfectly like Jesus does. We don't know our own sinful hearts, let alone what the future holds. Who knows how many things God has spared us from by not giving us what we ask for in our foolish, sinful hearts. Him saying no to you is not because he hates you, it's because he loves you. Whenever we pray, whatever we are asking God for, we can rest in this unchanging truth. Whatever God gives in response to our request, whatever God gives, every time, it is good. God only gives good gifts to his children when they ask. So even when it's hard to wait, even when it doesn't make sense, God always does what is good. And we can, we can rest assured of that. Verse 41. Verse 41 says, And when the ten heard it, the other ten disciples heard James and John request, they became indignant at James and John. So we're told that when the other ten disciples hear and caught wind of what James and John were up to, they got angry. They were furious. Because in their request, James and John were saying, We're better than the other ten. We deserve to be at the right and left. We deserve the positions of number one and number two, not these other ten. And I think that's true for us, too. When we find our significance based on how we compare ourselves to others, then conflict is soon behind. So much of our discouragement and our worry and our anxiety and our anger and our fear comes because of our concern about our status. And like these disciples, if we define our greatness based on how we compare ourselves to others, then we lose sleep at night Hoping for respect or applause or being important in the eyes of others. Because our concern for what others think about us ends up putting us on a roller coaster. Pride when we're successful and despair when we fail because our whole value is based on others' opinions of us. Friends, do you see yourself in this story? Do you see yourself in, this, in, the, in the request of James and John? Can you relate with these disciples and their anger towards James and John, thinking that they're insulted by, by not being seen as number one and number two? Friends, if you are sick from being on the roller coaster or up and down from finding your identity based on how you compare with other people, if, you, if you're feeling nauseous by the, being, the ups and downs of being a slave to the opinion of others, Jesus shows us a better way. He shows us a path to freedom, a, a path to joy and contentment, free from comparison, free from competition. It's the path of Christian discipleship, the path of following Jesus to true greatness. The world's path to greatness depends on competition. It depends on being better than others. That's how you know you're great. That's what Jesus means when he says in verse 42, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. He's saying the world seeks power and status and control, and they lord it over people to make sure that others know I'm great. If you have power, if you have the right connections, if you have money, in this world you can get what you want. But Jesus is clear. In verse 43 he says to the Christian but it shall not be so among you. To follow me, you must reject the world's definition of greatness. That may be the way the world operates, but it's not the way it operates in the kingdom of God. Jesus presents a different path to true greatness. Again, look at verse 43. He says, Whoever would be great among you. So Jesus is not against us being great. He's all for greatness. But he's offering a different path towards greatness. He says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now, it's, it's one thing to be a servant, The word for servant there is the idea, of this language of a table waiter. So some of us might choose a career as being a table waiter at a restaurant. That could be a good job. But Jesus says more than as being a waiter or a servant. He goes on even further to say, you must be slave of all. Now, no one signs up to be a slave. A slave is the last A slave is the least of all. A a slave is even beneath a servant. They are the nobodies of society. They have no rights. And Jesus says if you want to be great, you must not only be a servant, you must also be a slave of all. Do you find that difficult? Do you find it offensive that Jesus would call us to be a slave in order to follow him? Friends, for many, this is one of the most difficult things about Christianity, because Christianity insults our pride. Christianity insults our self-importance. Following Christ in this way feels risky, because it means walking the path uh, that requires trusting Jesus that what he says, this leads to greatness, it means trusting Jesus that that's true, and it goes against all our intuition, That's not the path to greatness. The whole world says it's this way. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 true greatness is this way, by being a slave, a servant of all. And and, and to follow Jesus means that we're putting all our chips, so to speak, with Jesus. We're walking away from the possibility of gaining applause by the world's well-worn path to greatness. So why should we do this? Why would we take the risk of following Jesus and his path to true greatness? Well, verse 45 gives the reason why we should take that risk. Look at verse 45. Why take the risk? Verse 45. For, because even the Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Because that's what Jesus did. Do you see how silly and ridiculous we look when we go around the room puffing at our chest, flaunting our titles and our paychecks and our positions, when we're standing next to the foot of the cross. It's so inconsistent as a Christian. Jesus says, this is the path of greatness, and then we're puffing out our chest saying, we're awesome. And Jesus is saying, I'm a slave. I'm a servant. We should want to be like Jesus in that sense. John Stott puts it this way. He says in the book, The Cross of Christ, he says every time we as christians look at the cross of christ the cross of christ seems to be saying to us i am here because of you it is your sin I am bearing. It is your curse that I am suffering. It is your debt that I am paying. It is your death that I am dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross of Jesus Christ. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there, John Stott says, at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. That's really helpful, I think. Jesus' death and resurrection is also where we meet God's incredible love, too. And I don't want us to miss that. It's at the cross that we are undone, knowing that God loved us while we were unlovable. That is God's mercy and His love. And the more we know this love... The more we're free from needing to compare ourselves with other people in order to find our significance or our place or our value in society. Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice, him dying in our place, proves to our insecure, skittish little hearts that we are worthy, that we find sorry, that we find worth in him. That, that God looked at us and said, I love you that we are worth everything to Jesus, and that we have everything that we need in him. We no longer need to rely on competition to find our value, or comparison to find our value, but God's grace. We look to God's grace to find our value. And as a result, we're set free from this this needing to compare and compete, and we're finally set free to serve and love as Christ has loved us. So friends, what does it look like for you to follow Jesus' example this coming week? Give that some careful thought. Talk about it over lunch today. That'd be, a good, that'd be a good discussion over lunch. Talk together about what does it mean for you to be a servant as a father or as a mother. Talk about what it means to better serve your spouse. Talk together about how, you know, if, 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 kids in, the, in this room, think together about ways that you can serve your parents. Think about ways you can serve your brother or your sister as, you know, as, an, as following Jesus' example of being a servant. You know, think about your own role as a boss or as a teacher or a friend. How can you serve in that role? Because the world leads by lording their position and privilege over others and then using those under them to serve their selfish gain. That's what Jesus is teaching. But God calls us to to lead differently. God calls us to lead as Jesus leads, to lead by serving others. The world measures greatness by how many people serve you. God measures true greatness by how many people you're a servant to. Warren Wearsby writes about a, a couple who had served faithfully for years in Africa to make Christ known. And after years of service, they were, they were, they were old and at the end of their life, and so they, they were coming home from serving for, for decades in Africa. And they were coming back to the U.S., And it happened on on the ship that they were on on their way home to the United States. On the same ship, the same ship was carrying Teddy Roosevelt who happened to be on a safari in Africa. And when the ship pulls up, there were thousands of people waving flags and cheering on Teddy Roosevelt when he came off the, the ship. And they were waiting for autographs and for interviews and for taking pictures with Teddy Roosevelt. Thousands of people. But there was nobody to welcome this couple who had served Christ for decades selflessly in Africa. Later that evening, the couple were reviewing their arrival into New York City. And the husband was somewhat bitter. He spoke to his wife about it and he said, It's just not fair. Mr. Roosevelt comes back from a hunting trip and the whole country greets him and celebrates him. We come home from years of service in Africa and nobody's there to greet us. But his wife had the right answer. That's true, honey. But we're not home yet. Friends, following Jesus means trusting Jesus following Jesus means rejecting the world's approach to greatness. And third, following Jesus means crying out for mercy. That's the third and final point we see in this text. We see it kind of unfold in verses 46 through 52. So let's look again to God's word in verse 46. And they came to Jericho. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Same question he asked the disciples just a moment ago. And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, teacher, let let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him go your way your faith has made you well and immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way when Jesus left jericho there was a large crowd we're told in the text pressing in so there's a flurry of activity going on around Jesus it, it seems like this at this point in time it's the feast of the passover so all these uh, people are making a pilgrimage to jerusalem to celebrate the passover there's lots of people around So all these these people were coming into town. And alongside this road, though, was a man. We're told his name was Bartimaeus. He was blind. He was homeless. He was a beggar. And everything about his day, this this blind beggar named Bartimaeus, everything about his day reminds him about his helplessness. That's the details that the text gives us. Most likely, he he had to rely on his friends around him every day to guide him from his house to his spot alongside the road where he would beg. And we can imagine that, you know, his friends would wake, he'd wake up and his friends would hold out his cloak to put on in the morning. And, you know, he he might not know that there was food left on his beard from the night before. He had to rely upon his friends because he couldn't see to clean off the food from his beard. He needed his friend to help him every step of the way. And then later that, that day, as he sat there, he would be begging and asking for people for money as they passed by. His very occupation reminded him of his dependence on others. Everything about him reminds him of his dependence on others around him. He was easily overlooked by the crowd. He was easily forgotten. Why? Because he had no power. He had no influence. He had no money. He, in the eyes of the world, was a nobody. He had no greatness. But he wasn't a nobody to God. I love that about the text. There's a subtle hint about this in verse 46. We're not just told that he's a beggar. Mark includes the detail about his name. We're told he was Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. He was somebody's son. He was somebody's brother. He was somebody's friend. The text is saying he is a somebody in the eyes of God. So, what does Bartimaeus, when when he hears that Jesus is near, he, he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The crowds may be blind to Jesus' identity, but somehow, blind Bartimaeus is the one person in the crowd who sees the truth about who Jesus is. He's the son of David. The title, Son of David, points back to the Old Testament promise of a day when God would raise up a king in the line of David who would rule forever. You can see that in 2 Samuel 7, verse 16. But when he cries out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Verse 48, many people rebuked him, telling him to be silent. It's as if the crowd is reminding Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus, you're a nobody. A king like Jesus doesn't have time for you. So, what is Bartimaeus supposed to do being silenced by the crowds? He needs Jesus' help. He knows that Jesus is the only one who can help him. He believes Jesus can help him. He thinks this is Jesus who's the son of David. But he doesn't have any connections. He can't get in the inner meeting with his connections and his power and his money. So, what's he supposed to do? The only thing he could do. Verse 48. He cries out all the more, Son of David! Have mercy on me! And Jesus stopped. And he calls to him. Come. Don't you love that? How simple that is? When we call out to Jesus in our need, he's not too busy. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's got got a mission, a plan, all these things in front of him, but he's not too busy. He stops. And because... Bartimaeus cries out for mercy he gives mercy he's willing to help even a person that the world thought was a nobody verse 51 and Jesus said to him what do you want me to do for you again it's the exact same question that Jesus had been asked by James and John but it's by a very different person James and John that that question came out of pride this comes out of a question of humility The disciples were blinded by their self-importance and proud self-reliance. Like the rich young ruler, the wealth of their position made it hard for them to see their need. And so they asked for status from Jesus. We want to sit at your right hand and your left. Bartimaeus may have been physically blind, but he saw better in a spiritual sense than anybody else in this story. Someone once asked blind and deaf Helen Keller the question, Isn't it terrible to be blind? To which she responded, Well, it's better to be blind and see with your heart than to have two good eyes and see nothing. No doubt Bartimaeus hated being blind. It was an ailment. That's why he asked Jesus to heal him. But I think there's a lesson for us here as well. Friends, trials are not fun, but they have a way of sobering us up from the lie that we're self-sufficient. Or that God's lucky to have us on his team. When we cry out to God for his mercy and we trust him in our need, weakness becomes the stage for God's power to be put on display. For God's glory to be seen by those around us. May God give us wisdom in our trials that we have this, the, the, the same perspective of Helen Keller. That it's better to be blind physically, to be in a trial than to see with our hearts and have you know then we it's better to be blind but see with our hearts than to have everything this world offers but miss Jesus. Look once more at verse 52 with me. And Jesus said to him Go your way your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. He followed Jesus. Isn't that in- interesting? Jesus says to Bartimaeus, go on your way. Your way. And what does Bartimaeus do? He follows Jesus on the way. He leaves following, he he leaves the path of going his own way, and Bartimaeus begins to follow Jesus, which is what a disciple does, which is what a Christian does. So we may look at Bartimaeus and think, ah, poor Bartimaeus, beggar, blind, a nobody, but if he sees Jesus, cries out to him in faith, and goes to heaven, and yet the self-reliant crowds miss Jesus, what we should be saying is, oh, poor self-reliant people. It's not poor, poor Barmaeus. The, the definition of greatness is turned around. We would say poor self-reliant people, they don't see the truth. God turns the value system of the world upside down. True greatness comes by rejecting God. True greatness comes by rejecting the world's approach to greatness. True greatness comes to those who, in their weakness, cry out to God for mercy. You're either humble or you're humbled. You're either humble now or you'll be humbled one day. We don't like humbling ourselves now, we we long for significance. We long to be great in this life. We long to be seen as important as somebody in the eyes of others. But Jesus is saying to us, as those who follow him, first the cross, then the crown. As Jesus is modeled for us and made possible for us in his own death and resurrection, the path to greatness is not in being served, but in denying ourselves and being a servant of all. That's what it means to take up our cross. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, Jesus teaches, in the Gospels, will save it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your Son. Who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many? We were trapped in our sin with a debt that we could not pay on our own, and the wages of our sin being death itself. And so we thank you for Jesus who who came to be our ransom. Father, help us to believe not this world's definition of true greatness. Help us to look to Jesus. Help us to look to the future with faith and to believe what true greatness truly is. Help us to serve. Help us to follow. Help us to cry out for mercy and to rely upon you and to admit our weakness. And on the the, the weakness of our lives, we pray that you would display your power and your mercy. In Jesus' name, Amen.